Uh, welcome everybody to the penultimate citizenship talk of the year. Uh, there will be one more May 10th. Jim Glassman, a geographer from uh, University of British Columbia. Um, uh, I don't know how many of you have been to these. We basically run philosophy format when we have a philosopher uh, with one minor alteration. Um, we'll go for roughly till 4.30 uh, for the talk. Uh, we won't take a break, so if you need a break, you should excuse yourself and come back in, and then we'll have questions, and then there'll be a reception after the talk. Um, we also do not engage in much of an introduction. In this case, we don't really need one. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to Columbus uh, Christine Korsgaard from Harvard. Uh, we'll, I'll drag this out so Sigrun can jog into the room out of breath. Ready? Uh, Professor Korsgaard, The Origin of the Good and Our Animal Nature. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Okay, I hope you all have a copy of the hand. Can you hear me all right? Okay, I hope you all have a copy of the handout. I won't often be referring directly to it, but it does take up the points in the order I discuss them, so you'll find you're able to follow along on it. Now, the paper I'm reading today is part of a larger project in which I investigate questions about the origins of values and the implications of those origins uh, for our relationships to non-human animals. Uh, those who believe that there are intrinsic values, that some objects, activities, or entities simply have the property of being valuable, don't feel a need to answer questions about the origins of value. But I believe that all value is dependent on the existence of valuing beings. Now, in today's lecture, I'm going to defend an account of the good, which I derive from Aristotle, that grounds it in our animal nature and explain why I think this account is superior to some of its rivals. And one reason I think it's superior is that it enables us to explain why there is such a thing as the good. Now, I want to begin my discussion today by noticing something that I think we should find puzzling about our use of the concept of the good. The term good is used in two broadly different ways. First, good is our most general term of evaluation, a term we apply to nearly every kind of thing, or at least every kind of thing for which we have any use or with which we interact. Think of the wide variety of things that we evaluate as good or bad. Cars, houses, machines and instruments, dogs and cats, food, weather, days, prose, pictures, movies, muscles and bones, people considered as occupying certain roles such as mother, teacher, son, president, and people considered just as people, among many other things. All of these things may be evaluated as good or bad. Now, evaluation is usually related uh, to the purpose, role, or function of the entity that is judged to be good or bad. An entity is good in the evaluative sense when it has the properties that enable it to serve its function, either its usual or natural function or one we've assigned to it for some specific purpose. I'm going to call that the evaluative good. I call good in the second sense in which we use the term good, the final good, 
borrowing one familiar translation for the Greek term telos. We suppose that something we call the good is the end or aim of all our strivings, or at any rate the crown of their success, the summum bonum, a state of affairs that is desirable or valuable for its own sake. We're usually talking about a person's final good when we speak of what is good for that person. The things that are good or bad for a person are things that have an impact on his final good. And we sometimes call our own final good the human good, suggesting that things other than human beings have a final good of their own, and perhaps also suggesting that the good for a thing is relative to its nature. Now, the puzzle is simply this. What is the relationship between the evaluative and the final sense of the good? Why do we use the same term as a general term of positive evaluation and to designate the state that is the end and aim of all our strivings? I think that most people do not find this puzzling because they think that the answer is obvious. They think that when we talk about someone's final good, we're still using the term evaluatively. We're evaluating the person's life. I don't mean we're evaluating it morally. That would be more like an evaluation of the person himself. Rather, we're evaluating something about how the life goes and the total circumstances in which it's lived. It's tempting to say that we're evaluating the quality of his life. But the phrase evaluating the quality really just says the same thing twice over, namely that his life is a proper subject of evaluation. That's the kind of thing that can be of a high or a low quality. But that's exactly the problem. How exactly can a life and its circumstances be a proper subject of evaluation? Ordinarily, as I mentioned earlier, we evaluate things by asking whether um, they have the properties that enable them to perform their function. Uh, But a person's life and circumstances, considered merely as such, don't seem to have any function. If we ask whether, say, a car is good, we're asking whether it has the properties that enables cars to perform their function well, whether it handles well, gets good gas mileage, is safe, and things of that kind. But when we ask whether a person's life is good, we don't seem to be asking anything except whether the person whose life it is achieves this thing we call the good. In fact, this becomes particularly obvious uh, if we want to leave open the possibility that the human good is something that is in a certain way external to life itself, the way it is on some conceptions of, say, salvation or nirvana. People who believe in such final goods do believe um, that human life has a purpose, but that purpose seems to be to enable us to achieve this thing we call the good. But then what are we evaluating when we talk about the good? Now, one might be tempted to say that we're evaluating possible ends, things we might pursue for their own sakes. But then what's the function of an end? Or to put it more intelligibly, what makes something fit to be an end? Apparently, simply that it's something good, for its own sake, or finally good. This is the kind of consideration uh, 
that drove GE more to the view that there's simply nothing we can say about the good except that it's good. In just the same way, there's nothing we can say about red except that it's red. It's just a property. It follows from Morris' theory that there's no way we can know what's good in the final sense except by a power of rational intuition that functions like a sense. And if more is right, there's no point in trying to identify the human good through philosophical argument. We just have to focus our powers of intuition. But I believe that the puzzle does have an answer and the situation is not as hopeless as more made it seem. Excuse me. Now, I'll come back to the puzzle, but first I want to lay out three theories of the final good that I'm going to canvas in my search for an answer and note where they stand on a certain question, namely whether and how the final good for a being is relative to its nature. According to what I'll call the intrinsic value theory, and this is essentially G.E. Moore's theory, Certain objects, states of affairs, activities, or forms of experience have the property of being intrinsically valuable. And the good for a sensate being consists in uh, exercising its ability to experience, appreciate, or participate in these intrinsically valuable things. On this view, the good for a being is relative to its nature, but only in the sense that its nature determines which kinds of intrinsic value it has access to. The human good, someone might say, is a richer thing than the good for a non-human animal because our nature enables us to enjoy such intrinsically valuable things as art, literature, science, philosophy, and humor, while another's animal's nature might enable it to enjoy only such simple intrinsic values as um, pleasurable experience, family affection, or the excitement of the hunt. On this view, we can intelligibly say that it's better to be a human being than it is to be another sort of animal, since human beings get to participate in a wider range of intrinsically valuable activities. Plants and inanimate objects on this view do not have a final good at all, since they're unable to participate in valuable activities or have valuable experiences. Now, according to the second view I'm going to consider, hedonism, the good just is pleasurable experience or consciousness and the absence of painful experience or consciousness. What makes a being capable of having a final good is simply that the being is conscious. Otherwise, its good is not relative to its nature. As is often noticed on this theory, it looks like a real question uh, whether some of the other animals might not have a better life or at least be capable of a better life than human beings given their apparent enthusiasm for rather simple and readily available joys. Although I'll treat it as a separate theory for reasons I'm going to explain later, uh, hedonism, I believe, has an inherent tendency to collapse either into a version of the intrinsic value theory or into a version of the third view I'm about to describe. Obviously, it's possible to regard hedonism simply as a particular instance of the intrinsic value theory, 
one that singles out conscious experience as the only possible bearer of intrinsic value. But I think this way of looking at hedonism does not do justice to the intuition that has made hedonism seem plausible to so many thinkers. That intuition is precisely the idea that the final good must have an irreducibly subjective or relational element. That is, what makes hedonism seem plausible is precisely the idea that the final good for a sensate being must be something that can be felt or perceived or experienced uh, as a good by that thing. That is, it must be something uh, that can be experienced as welcome or positive from the being's own point of view, and that is therefore relative to the being's own point of view. The intrinsic value version of hedonism tries to capture the essentially subjective element in the idea of the final good by attaching objective intrinsic value to a subjective experience. But when this move is made, the essentially relational or relative character of subjectivity tends to drop away. The goodness of the experience is detached from its goodness for the being who has the experience and instead is located in the character of the experience itself. This defect shows up most clearly in utilitarian versions of hedonism, which allow us to add the goodness of pleasant experiences across the boundaries between persons or between animals. There is no subject for whom the total of these aggregated experiences is good, and so the aggregate good has completely lost its relational character. Um, The goods are detached from the beings for whom they're good. This relational element in value, I believe, is better captured by the third theory that I'm about to describe. Now, the third view, and the one I'm going to defend, is a version of the account suggested by Aristotle's famous function argument in section 7 of book 1 of the Nicomachean Ethics. Here's what Aristotle says, and this quotation is on the handout. Presumably, however, to say that happiness is the chief good seems a platitude, and a clearer account of what it is is still desired. This might perhaps be given if we could first ascertain the function of man. For just as a flute player, a sculptor, or any artist, and in general, for all things that have a function or activity, the good and the well is thought to reside in the function. So it would seem to be for man if he has a function. Now, Aristotle's point, I believe, and I've argued for this at length elsewhere, is not that human life has a purpose and our good rests in serving that purpose. Rather, characterizing the view in an abstract and somewhat cumbersome way, Aristotle's idea is that the good for a being consists in the well-functioning of that being as the kind of being that it is in circumstances that are conducive or favorable to its overall well-functioning. I know that's abstract, and I'll try to make it less abstract later on. Aristotle's view, like the hedonist view, could conceivably be reduced to a version of the intrinsic value theory. 
we could say either that the well-functioning of a sensate being has intrinsic value or that a sensate being is well-functioning when he participates in whatever intrinsically valuable activities his nature makes possible for him. But I think Aristotle's view is more interesting if we combine it with a Kantian thought about value, which makes all values relative to what we might broadly call our valuing capacities, the capacity to find something pleasant, interesting, enchanting, satisfying, or stimulating, and, of course, to experience the opposite responses as well. Sticking to the human case for now, according to this view, what makes a state of affairs or an object or an experience valuable is precisely its capacity for eliciting joy, interest, or appreciation from human beings together with the value that, according to Kant, we necessarily set upon our humanity itself. Science and philosophy are valuable for human beings because they engage and arouse the intellectual faculties of human beings. Art and music are valuable for human beings because of their capacity to elicit complex and satisfying perceptual experiences refined by thought and emotion. Fine food and wines are valuable for human beings because of our capacity to aestheticize the appetites we share with the other animals. Love and friendship are valuable because of, the human, because of human social needs they satisfy and the human powers they arouse in us. It's not that these responses that the, are responses to value, but rather that they confer value on their objects. If it's asked why we treat the things that are good for human beings as finally good, as valuable for their own sakes, Kant's answer, given by his formula of humanity, is that we take these things to be valuable because of the value we necessarily place on ourselves. To take what is important to you to be important, period, is just what it means to place a value on yourself. And to render these values normative is, accordingly, to express the value you place on yourself and on humanity generally by willing these values as laws. That's what makes it obligatory for people to bring them about or gives people a reason to bring them about. So what makes our well-functioning good is not that it has intrinsic value or that it consists in the pursuit of intrinsically valuable activities, but rather that we ourselves value it and confer normativity upon it. And in what follows, I will be arguing that we pretty much have to do that because of our animal nature. Now, according to this Aristotelian theory, values are relative in a deep way to a being's nature. It's good for a human being to philosophize or explore nature or fall in love in just the same way that it's good for a horse to run or a whale to breach or a tiger to hunt or for an insect to pollinate its characteristic plant because that is the fulfillment or realization of its nature because that's how it functions. On this view, interestingly, we can't really say that it's better to be a human being than to be another kind of animal Or if we can, it's only with reference to the kinds of goods we share with the other animals, to the goods that pertain to our animal nature as such, rather than to specifically human goods. Now, 
Before I continue, um, I want to mention two other theories of the final good that are commonly discussed in the literature on this question, namely perfectionism and eudaimonism, and explain why I'm not discussing them here. And this will give me an opportunity to clarify something about the nature of the question that I'm trying to raise. As the translation of the passage that I just quoted from Aristotle suggests, people often identify the human good with happiness. The theory that happiness is the good is sometimes called eudaimonism from the word that gets translated happiness here. Now, one reason I won't be discussing this view is that the notion of happiness is almost as obscure as the notion of the final good itself. In fact, we can interpret happiness so broadly that it means pretty much the same thing as the final good, although with a nod towards the subjective element in that concept that I've already mentioned in connection with hedonism. On the other hand, if we interpret happiness so that it means something more specific than that, then the theory that happiness is the good is not a theory of the good in the sense that I'm talking about here as I will explain in a moment. Now, Aristotle's view, and Aristotle seems to be the source of all of our views about the final good, Aristotle's view is often also classified as a version of what is called perfectionism, the view that the good for a human being rests in the development or realization of human capacities. On the assumption that a thing's well-functioning is expressed in the realization of its natural capacities, it does make sense to attribute that view to Aristotle. But some perfectionists, again, seem to have something more specific in mind, an idea of using our capacities and powers to the fullest, maximizing their use or something like that. It's not really clear why the bare idea of well-functioning should involve the idea of using one's powers to the fullest. But however that may be, uh, there's a reason I haven't included these two theories among my candidates, although this reason is a little difficult to explain. Uh, Eudaimonism and perfectionism are most naturally understood as theories about the content of the final good, about what in particular is finally good. Whereas what I am asking about What I'm looking for is an account of the final good that would enable us to pick out its content, one that it would enable us to say which things are good and explain why they are, or at least to say how we would go about picking out which things are good. I might say, since I'm being obscure now anyway, uh, that what I'm asking about in this paper is not the content of the final good, but about its nature on the assumption that if we knew what kind of thing the final good is, we would be able to apply that knowledge to discover which things were finally good. In fact, the distinction between these two things is clearer in some theories than others. And G.E. Moore's theory enables me to show you what I have in mind. Moore's theory about the nature of the good is that um, it's uh, an intrinsic property discerned by intuition. Moore's theory about its content is, loosely speaking, that it consists in aesthetic experience, friendship, knowledge, and things of that kind. 
Now, in spelling out my three theories, I mentioned that either Aristotle's theory or hedonism can be, and often are, regarded as applications of the intrinsic value theory. That is, about, as claims about which things have intrinsic value. Uh, and so as claims about the content of the good. But I am treating these theories as theories about the nature of the good. That this sort of slippage is possible, I think, shows that philosophers don't usually make a very firm distinction uh, between views about the nature of the good and views about its content. And I think that in itself is no accident because the difficulty of making this distinction is reflected in the puzzle I started out from itself. If we don't know exactly what we're evaluating or how we're ev- exactly we're evaluating it when we claim that something is good in the final sense of good, it's not surprising that we can't dis- firmly distinguish between talking about the nature of the good and talking about its content. Most of the time, we know what we're doing when we evaluate something uh, as evaluatively, when, sorry, when we identify something as evaluatively good. I want to know what we're doing when we identify something as finally good. Now, the fact that I'm looking for a theory of the nature of the good in the sense I just described uh, may make it seem quite surprising that I've included hedonism on my list of candidates, on my list of theories about the nature of the good, because hedonism is most naturally interpreted as a theory about the content of the good. I've included it because I think, for reasons already mentioned, that it captures something very important about the nature of the good, namely the subjective and relational aspect of the good that I talked about before. As for Aristotle, explaining his account as an account of the nature of the good uh, will be the work of the rest of the paper. In fact, I hope you won't be too disappointed to learn uh, that for purposes of this lecture, I'm not going to say much at all about the content of the final good. For today, I'm going to take it for granted that any of these accounts might plausibly pick out the sorts of activities, experiences, and achievements that most of us are tempted to think must constitute the content of the final good for human beings. Love, knowledge, participation in social and civic life, intellectual and aesthetic experiences and activities, standing in a proper relationship to the rest of humanity and to nature, moral virtue, significant achievement, all of the usual things. Such things might be taken to be intrinsically valuable. They might be taken to be the source of our deepest and steadiest pleasures. Or they might be taken to be the manifestations of the well-functioning of our nature, depending on which theory is correct. My interest today is rather in the metaphysical question, what sort of thing we're talking about when we talk about the final good for a certain kind of being. Now, I'm interested in Aristotle's view because I think it represents a different way or maybe a further way of relating the evaluative and the final senses of good. Earlier I mentioned uh, that the view that we use the same term for the evaluative good and the final good because talk of the final good involves the evaluation of a life. 
According to Aristotle's view, we use the same term for a slightly different reason. We use it because both the evaluative and the final good are matters of well-functioning. To say that something is evaluatively good is to say that it has the properties that make for well-functioning, uh, and to say that it achieves its final good is to say that it, in fact, functions well. Importantly, though, we should say that it achieves its final good not merely when it functions as well as it can, given the circumstances, uh, whatever they are, but when it functions well in circumstances that allow for or perhaps even facilitate its well-functioning. Okay, now all of that's very abstract, and in order to make it less so, it's going to be necessary for me to say a little bit about the metaphysical conception uh, that rests behind Aristotle's claims. According to Aristotle, uh, pretty much any substance or entity has a function. This is because according to Aristotle, a substance or entity is matter so organized as to serve some purpose or have some function, uh, basically to do something. Specifically, every entity can be analyzed as a form in a matter. The matter is the stuff or the parts from which the entity is composed, uh, and the form is the arrangement of the matter or the parts that enables the entity to serve its purpose or to do whatever it characteristically does. Now, of course, these ideas are clearest in the case of artifacts. A car is, say, engine, gas tank, chassis, wheels, etc., organized in such a way as to form a guidable means of human transport or something like that. The engine, gas tank, chassis, wheels, and so on are the matter or the parts. Uh, the form is that arrangement of those parts that enables the car to serve as a guidable means of human transport. In the case of an artifact, of course, we identify the function or purpose of the entity in question by reference to our own purposes or that of its inventor. But Aristotle extended this basic idea that a substance is a functionally organized unity to living things by means of a thesis about what a living thing is. A living thing is a substance so organized as to secure the continuing existence of its own form. It does this in two ways. Through nutrition, which enables it to preserve a continuing spatio-temporal stream of matter in its own arrangement or form, and through reproduction, which enables it to impose its form on other bits of matter. In other words, a living thing has a form that maintains matter in that very form. And that, according to Aristotle, is its function. A living thing functions well, essentially, then, when it manages to stay alive and reproduce. This metaphysical thesis does not imply that living things, like artifacts, were made for a purpose by a designer. Instead, it simply asserts that that's what a living thing is. We identify some bit of matter as a living entity when it is so organized as to preserve its own form in these ways, when it has a self-maintaining form. Now, each kind of organism uh, has its own specific ways 
of carrying out its nutritive and reproductive activities, uh, and so its own form of life. And we can identify it simply as the substance or entity uh, that leads that form of life, or whose matter is so organized in such a way that it maintains its form by living that form of life. So a dandelion is an entity that maintains its form through dandelion activities, such as spreading its seeds on the wind. And a porcupine is an entity that maintains its form through porcupine activities, such as defending itself with quills. In each case, the function of the entity is simply to be what it is and to lead the kind of life that it characteristically leads. But we can also draw broad distinctions among types of life forms. Plants are the basic form of living things, Aristotle thinks, characterized simply by the powers of nutrition and reproduction. Animals, as Aristotle understands them, uh, are characterized by an additional set of powers that determine the way they carry out the nutritive and reproductive functions, namely the powers of perception and action, where action is understood just here as locomotion guided by perception. The idea of an animal, as Aristotle understands it, is the idea of an entity that preserves its form in part through its consciousness of its environment, that is through perception, and its resulting ability to respond to the environment in ways that serve to maintain its form. The idea, of course, is not that the animal aims at the preservation of its form, if that's understood to mean that the animal consciously entertains any such idea. Rather, the idea is that the way the animal functions involves having instinctive evaluative attitudes, desire and aversion, pleasure and pain, fear and interest, towards things that affect the animal's functioning. Now, it may seem extravagant to ascribe evaluative attitudes uh, to simpler animals, uh, but I think that an animal's experiences must, at some level, and however primitively, be aversive or welcome in order to play a role in the animal's self-maintenance at all. If her perceptions are to guide her towards what she needs and away from what threatens her, they must render some things attractive and some repellent, and that's all that the argument will require. Now, because it has the powers that make agency possible, Aristotle believed an animal lives or has a life uh, in a somewhat different sense than a plant does. It's natural for us to describe animals, sorry, animals do things in a sense that plants don't. It's natural for us to describe animals, even primitive ones, uh, as hunting, eating, mating, defending themselves, and raising their families. But the capacities for feeling and action are not merely powers added, so to speak, on top of the animal's nutritive and reproductive functions. They're powers that exist in the first instance as part of the way the animal carries out the tasks of nutrition and reproduction that the animal shares with plants. The animal's capacity for action shapes the way she gets her food and raises her offspring. However, as a result of having these powers, animals also do things that plants don't do at all. They enjoy and suffer from their lives. And as a result, um, they do things also 
that plants don't do like loving or hunting or playing. These facts make the life of an animal a different kind of thing than the life of a plant. And Aristotle also thought that human beings, as rational animals, uh, formed a distinct third kind of being with a distinct third kind of life. Um, I won't attempt here to say what Aristotle understands by rationality, but his idea is that the capacity for rationality changes the way we carry out the functions we share with the other animals, just as the capacity for action changes the way animals carry out the functions that they share with plants. And as in that case, the capacity for rationality also adds to our repertoire of activities, expanding those to include such purely human activities as, say, the disinterested pursuit of knowledge and aesthetic activities. But the main change is that with rationality uh, comes the power of choice in a distinctive sense that's not shared by the other animals. Because a non-human being's way of life is mapped out for her, at least broadly, by her instincts, and any two members of a given animal species basically lead the same sort of life unless the differences are biologically fixed, as by age and gender, or, as, or by kinds as among bees. A human being, as a rational being, uh, therefore has a life in a different sense than this because a human being, as a rational being, is capable of choosing what we sometimes call a way of life or following Rawls, a conception of the good. So rational nature or personhood introduces a new form of functioning and so a new form of life. Now, that last consideration um, points in the direction of an answer to a possible objection one might have to Aristotle's theory of the good. By now, I suppose it's obvious uh, that Aristotle's theory implies that the final good for an organism is essentially uh, to lead a healthy life of its kind, uh, or to lead a healthy life of its kind in circumstances favorable to its leading such a life and continuing to lead such a life. And while that may be a plausible thing to say about the final good for a plant or an animal, it would, of course, be much too thin as an account of the human good. But as I've just explained, it is part of Aristotle's view that in virtue of rationality, human beings have a life in a sense that plants and animals don't. The well-functioning that constitutes the human good uh, is well-functioning in the specific kind of life that's made possible by the capacity for rational choice. It would take me too far afield to defend that claim further now, so for now I'll just assert that what it is to be well-functioning in that form of life is not merely a matter of health, not as we ordinarily understand it. But there's one ramification of Aristotle's theory of the human good that seems worth mentioning. According to the other two theories of the nature of the good that I've described, whether there is any connection between being a good person in the evaluative sense and achieving the good in the final sense seems to be an open question. A 
Of course, among the circumstances that are part of the final good for an entity might be some that require it to have certain evaluatively good qualities. But whether this is so and which qualities are required is an empirical or at least not a conceptual matter. Suppose that human beings are good in the evaluative sense when we are morally virtuous. Whether that promotes our ability to participate in intrinsically valuable activities or to have pleasurable experiences seems to be an open question. But in Aristotle's theory, the connection between being good in the evaluative sense and achieving the good in the final sense is not merely an empirical one because both kinds of goods essentially involve well-functioning. So if Aristotle is correct in thinking both that moral virtue is essential to human well-functioning, of course that's a big if, but if he's correct in thinking both that moral virtue is essential to human well-functioning and that the final good is to be a well-functioning entity of your kind, uh, then it falls out as a kind of necessary truth that moral virtue is essential to the achievement of the final good. Now, before I go on, I want to mention some other objections to Aristotle's view that are connected to the idea uh, that the good for an organism considered merely as such is essentially to lead a healthy life. And these objections have to do simply with the way we tend to talk. I've claimed that a thing is good in the evaluative sense when it has the properties that enable it to perform its function well. But we don't usually call a plant or an animal a good one in virtue of its being healthy. We might say that a healthy animal is a good specimen, but when we speak that way, we're not talking merely about the fact that he's healthy. Rather, we're talking about the fact that his health uh, makes him useful to us in some way, say as an object of study or as breeding livestock. And that brings me to the other side of the objection, uh, which is that we do tend to describe living entities as evaluatively good when they have the properties that enable them to serve our purposes. As we tend to use the evaluative notion, a good horse is one good for the riding, good corn is corn good for the eating, and if you would believe the caretakers of suburban lawns, the only good dandelion is a dead one. As we normally use the terms, then, we would not call a well-functioning dandelion a good one. Uh, And what we would call, say, good corn doesn't necessarily have the properties that make a corn plant flourish. It seems conceptually possible, for instance, that the sweetest corn best for the eating uh, might fail to reproduce well or something like that. Now, I don't think that either of these facts about the way we tend to talk um, should worry us about Aristotle's theory. Although we don't usually call healthy animals, therefore, good ones in virtue of their health, still there is an obvious continuity between the idea of a well-functioning artifact and the idea of a healthy animal. Both of them have the properties that enable them to do what they do successfully. But I'll sometimes call good in the sense of having these properties uh, the, uh, the extended evaluative sense to remind you that it includes both ordinary evaluation and the organic idea of being healthy. 
This is reflected in the fact that the ordinary evaluative sense of good and the idea of being healthy seem to support the notion of good for and bad for in similar ways. Uh, Fatty foods are bad for you and impure gasoline is bad for your car. And that's suggestive because this use of good for provides an apparent link between goodness in the final sense and goodness in the extended evaluative sense. In fact, the idea of health in general seems interestingly poised between the evaluative and the final uses of good. To say that an organism is healthy is clearly to evaluate how well it's functioning, and yet most of us would agree that health is at least an important part of the final good, and perhaps nearly the whole of it for simpler simpler animals. As for the other side of the linguistic awkwardness, uh, that the organisms we do call good are not necessarily healthy and thriving, that's no problem at all. That simply reflects our tendency to regard plants and animals as instruments and to evaluate them as if they were a kind of artifact produced for our own use. And even though we do that, we don't tend, we don't usually go so far as to talk about what is good for, say, plants, with reference to the way plants are good for us. Rather, we use it to refer to their own well-functioning. So, for instance, we might note with regret that the fertilizer we are using is just as good for the dandelions as it is for the grass. Aristotle's view that a thing's final good is its own well-functioning actually explains why we can say this sort of thing and why we say it in the case of living things but not in the case of artifacts. Since an artifact exists and has a function only with reference to us and our needs, there's no real room for opposition between its good and ours. But because a plant's function is defined with reference to the maintenance of its own form, to its ability to lead its own distinctive kind of life, such an opposition is possible. What's good for the dandelions may not be good from our point of view. Okay, but is goodness in the extended evaluative sense connected to final goodness in the way that Aristotle supposes? Some of you are probably going, growing restive already under the idea vaguely implied by what I've been saying that there is such a thing as the final good for, say, an artifact. We certainly do say, for instance, that it's good for your car to drive it once in a while, meaning that driving the car regularly keeps it functional. But we don't really think of a car as having a final good to which this contributes. Nothing that happens to the car is really for the sake of the car. Usually it's for the sake of the car's owner. We only think of certain kinds of beings as having a final good. Well, the notion of well-functioning extends much more widely. Indeed, according to Aristotle's metaphysics, it extends to pretty much anything we can recognize as an entity at all. Now, I don't think this is as grave a problem for Aristotle's view as we might at first think that it is, for reasons I've already touched on in the discussion above. The good for an artifact is wholly relative to the good of the being who will use it. In fact, sometimes when we talk about what's good for an artifact, it's fundamentally unclear whether we're really talking about something that enables it to perform its function 
or something that would give it other properties we would like it to have. And this is because it's fundamentally unclear whether we should count as part of its function it's having all of the properties we would like it to have. An example of the sort of thing I have in mind uh, is when we say that something is good for an artifact, meaning that it will enable the artifact to keep functioning and last for a long time. We prefer artifacts that keep functioning and last for a long time, and that makes us think of artifacts rather as if they were organisms. For it is part of the function of a living thing to last, that is, to keep itself alive. But self-maintenance is not, or at least not obviously, part of the function of an artifact. We even speak of an artifact in these contexts as having a life. Good gasoline, we say, will extend the life of your car. But does does that make it better at performing its function, which is serving it a means of transport? We don't need to answer that question because the whole issue arises simply because the good for an artifact is is a projection of its goodness for us. But the things that are good, bad for an organism really are good or bad for it and not just for us. So an organism has a final good in a much deeper sense than an artifact does. But of course the objection may be pursued further. Do we even want to say that plants have a final good? Many people believe that only beings who are conscious can have a final good. It at least seems true that things can be good or bad for a conscious animal in some way that's deeper than the way in which things can be good or bad for a plant. And it seems extremely plausible to suppose that a conscious being's final good has something to do with the state of its consciousness. For such a being, as I said earlier in my discussion of hedonism, we seem to require that its good be something that it can or even does experience as a good, experience as welcome. Does the presence of consciousness then introduce a sense of final good and good for, which is simply independent of the evaluative sense of good and the ideal of well-functioning that naturally accompanies it? Or could some form of well-functioning still be the good for conscious beings considered as such? So this seems to lead us to the question, what difference does consciousness make? There seems to be three possible views we might take about the way in which presence of consciousness in a creature might affect the character of its final good. One view is that consciousness introduces a new sense of the idea of a final good that has nothing intrinsic to do with the creature's well-functioning at all. The hedonist conviction that the good must simply be pleasure is grounded in this way of looking at things. According to the hedonists, when we talk about the good in the sense that is relevant to ethics, the good that utilitarians think we ought to promote, we are not talking about well-functioning at all. We're not talking about something that's in any way continuous with the idea of what's, say, good for a plant. Uh, We're talking about a distinct kind of final goodness made uh, possible by the existence of consciousness. Of course, well-functioning may, as it happens, tend to be agreeable, uh, tend to the agreeable state of one's consciousness, but that's not to say that the well-functioning itself 
is intrinsically connected to your final good. Some of the familiar protests against Aristotle's claim that we find our good in the practice of moral virtue springs from the idea that the good has this ineluctably subjective element. Imagine a gentle and generous human being who, in some emergency, sacrifices his life for the sake of others at an early age. He's surely a good person, and in one sense his life was a good one, but we don't feel easy saying that he has thus attained his own good or the good for himself. His life is not enviable or choice-worthy, although given the circumstances, he certainly did well to choose as he did. At a notorious moment in the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle claims that someone who sacrifices his life in battle uh, is, quote, getting a great good for himself because, quoting again, he prefers a 12-month of noble life to many years of humdrum existence. Aristotle is trying to establish that a morally virtuous act is always good from the agent's own point of view. But the claim seems absurd, not least because there is no reason at all to suppose that a virtuous person who fails to sacrifice himself will then have a humdrum existence. While the virtuous choice may indeed always be better than the alternative, for a virtuous soldier, desertion, say, is not an attractive option, it doesn't seem to follow that you always attain your own good by making a virtuous choice. Although this isn't the time to go into it, I don't think Aristotle really needs to draw this conclusion in order to support his own theory anyway, both because the good is supposed to be well-functioning in circumstances conducive to well-functioning, and because the well-functioning of a human being on Aristotle's account includes more than just moral virtue. But the general point is that simply identifying the summum bonum with a, good, with a life that's good only in the sense that we would approve of it doesn't satisfy the intuition that the good for a person must be something that the person experiences or could experience as a good. And that leads people to think that the good must just be some experiential thing like pleasure. But even if we agree that the good for a person must be something welcome from his own point of view, uh, we may still wish to join the many philosophers in the tradition who have resisted the hedonist idea uh, that the good just is a certain state of consciousness. The arguments here are old and familiar. It would be bad, we think, to spend your life hooked up to what Bob Nozick called an experience machine one that delivers a steady stream of pleasant sensations and imaginary uh, pleasant experiences directly into your brain, and so, in effect, to live in a dream. It would be bad, we think, to be hated by the people whom you imagine love you and despised by the people whom you imagine admire you. It would be bad to imagine that you are doing a great deal of good by actions that are actually creating havoc or to spend your life carrying out some arduous project destined to collapse like a house of cards shortly after your death. These things are bad even if you're fated never to be cured of your delusions or to know of your failure. For many philosophers would argue it's not the case that it's bad to be aware 
that you're hated or despised or a failure or a walking catastrophe to everyone around you simply because the consciousness of these things is painful. Rather, these conditions are objectively bad, and that is why the consciousness of them is painful. Because it's a consciousness of something bad. Now, these reflections give rise to another view we might take um, about the difference that consciousness makes. Perhaps consciousness doesn't make any difference to what constitutes your final good. Perhaps it simply enables you to be aware of whether you're achieving your final good or not. But of course, that doesn't seem right either. The arguments I just mentioned work by driving a wedge between an agreeable consciousness and a bad reality. But we can also construct arguments that drive a wedge between a disagreeable consciousness and a good reality. Perhaps you're loved by people whom you believe despise you. And perhaps your own efforts that seem so fruitless to you are actually setting humanity on its collective feet. Are we to say that someone who suffers from these negative delusions, of someone who suffers from these negative delusions, that he has a good life in the final, not the evaluative sense, but fails to know it? Imagine the story recounted in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life without that final revelation. A story in which the Jimmy Stewart character, George Bailey, really does commit suicide in the belief that it would have been better for everyone else if he'd never been born. If his life had ended that way, would it still have been a wonderful life? This consideration brings us back to the idea that the final goodness of a life depends on whether it is perceived or experienced as a good life after all. Now, in my view, we shouldn't resolve this conundrum by picking one side or the other. Uh, That is, either by deciding that the good just is agreeable consciousness or by deciding it is something wholly objective of which consciousness merely makes us aware. Rather, I think we should conclude that the concept of final goodness has a kind of reflexivity about it. Nothing can be a final good if it cannot be perceived as a final good. And indeed, the final good is, as it were, made complete by its own perception. Someone who's unaware of the goodness of his life therefore actually has a less good life. Or rather, we might say, the concept of being an entity that has a final good is reflexive in this way. Nothing can have a final good that cannot be aware of its final good as such. In this, the concept of having a final good would parallel the concept of having a personal identity. For as many philosophers have noted, nothing can have a personal identity that is not at least potentially aware of itself as having a personal identity. In parallel with the good, we might even say that someone who is unaware or only dimly aware of his personal identity therefore has less of a personal identity. Having a self-conception is not merely having a conception of something that exists completely independently of that conception. And in the same way, having a consciousness of the good is not merely having a consciousness of something that exists completely independently of that consciousness. I think we should adopt this third view of the relationship between consciousness and the final good. 
if we're tempted to say, if we're tempted to say that only conscious beings have a final good, it's because having a final good, like having a personal identity, is a reflexive property that only a conscious being can have. Okay, according to the conception I've just laid out, personal identity and the goodness of your life depend on consciousness. These things can only be had by beings who can be aware that they have them. This is not certainly not to say that either the goodness of your life or the character of your identity are whatever you take them to be. They are the awareness of something, even if it isn't the awareness of something wholly independent of that awareness itself. According to Aristotle's theory, what a being that has a final good is aware of is its own well-functioning of its goodness in the extended evaluative sense. But this suggests a very tight connection between the nature of an animal, as Aristotle understands it, and the idea of a being who has a final good. For an animal is not merely cognizant of her own well-functioning. Her awareness of her own well-functioning is an essentially evaluative awareness. And that is essential to the way she functions. She functions by standing in an evaluative relationship to her own well-functioning. She functions by experiencing things that are good for her as good. Here's what I mean. The distinctive form of life that characterizes an animal involves the maintenance of that very form of life by means of a relationship that obtains between the animal and her own well-functioning. The animal monitors her own functioning and has positive evaluative attitudes towards the things that will promote her functioning and negative ones towards the things that will inhibit it. To put it more simply and intuitively, healthy, well-functioning animals like to eat when they're hungry, are eager to mate, fear their enemies, work assiduously to keep themselves clean and healthy, and so forth. Now don't say, well, of course they do. Allow yourself to be struck by the fact that there are entities, things, that attend to the goodness of their own condition in this way. What these phenomena show is that the function of an animal is, in a sense, to take care of itself, and that nature made that possible by designing the animal to care about itself, by which I mean to enjoy and suffer from her own evaluative condition. On Aristotle's conception, that's not just a fact about animals. That's what an animal essentially is, something that functions by caring about herself and how she's doing. Animals have a final good because it is their nature to have evaluative attitudes about their own extended evaluative condition. And that's what a final good is. A final good is something that constitutes or contributes to the good condition of something that can experience its own condition as a good. That, I want to say, is the Aristotelian theory of the nature of the final good. Put it more carefully, Aristotle's theory of the nature of the final good is that a final good is something that constitutes or contributes to the good condition of something that stands in an evaluative relationship to its own evaluative condition. 
since an animal is essentially something that stands in a evaluative relationship to its own evaluative condition, to say that an animal has a final good is a kind of tautology. The two concepts, the concept of being an animal and the concept of being a creature with a final good, are pretty much coextensive. Okay, now to conclude and get back to my puzzle. What are we evaluating when we say that something is good in the final sense? And in what respect are we evaluating it? We're evaluating the condition of a being who stands in an evaluative relationship to his or her own condition. We might say that the judgment that something is good or bad for someone, for some person or animal, is essentially sympathetic. Because when we make that judgment, we must be viewing the person or animal's condition the way the person or animal herself must view it, namely, evaluatively. And what gives the evaluation content, the reason why this formula isn't empty, is that we're using the extended evaluative notion of the good, the functional notion of the good, to appraise the animal's condition. Furthermore, this knowledge of what we're doing uh, when we use the concept of the final good may make it possible for us to determine what the content of the final good will be without recourse to any mysterious intuitions. We simply have to learn how the being functions. So to achieve the good in the final sense on this view is to be aware of oneself as being in a good condition in the evaluative sense to be aware of oneself as well-functioning as the kind of thing that one is. And all of that is just an overlanky analytic way of saying that the final good for an animal is to be conscious of her own healthy life or to be conscious of herself as healthily alive. In the human case, that includes functioning well in the life of rational choice with all that that entails. If Aristotle and Kant are right, being well-functioning in the life of rational choice entails being morally well-functioning, so that is part of our good. According to this view, people who express their sense of being in a finally good condition by saying that they really feel alive are saying something rather literal. They feel their life, and they feel it as a good to them. And that is something it's the nature of an animal in a good condition to do. Now, the view I've just described to you is essentially Aristotle's with a modification in favor of an emphasis on consciousness. That modification seems to me to be necessary to capture the essential subjectivity or relativity of the idea of the final good, the reflexive element in the idea of a being that has a final good. I think that the theory so modified captures the element of truth in hedonism without falling into the characteristic errors of utilitarianism. On this theory, everything that is a good is a good to or for some sensate being. The final good is essentially relational, not intrinsic, because it's derived from the evaluative relation in which an animal by its very nature stands to itself. Because it is essentially relational, it can't be added across the boundaries between persons or between animals. Another advantage of this theory is that when it's combined with the Kantian theory of value, it enables us to explain the existence of the good in a naturalistic way. On the intrinsic value theory, various objects, activities, and experiences simply have intrinsic value. 
There's no explanation of why that should be so. It's just a fact. They've got a property. The value of objects and activities comes first, and there are valuing beings because there are beings capable of appreciating things that have this property. On the Aristotelian and Kantian theory I'm proposing, the order of dependence between valuing and values goes the other way. Values exist because there are valuing beings, beings who have evaluative attitudes towards their own condition, beings for whom things can therefore be good or bad. And it's because there are such beings, because there are animals, that there is such a thing as the finally good. Thank you. Um, I think it'd be best if uh, questioners identify themselves, uh, since it's likely to be a bit of an interdisciplinary audience, and um, I'll try to manage uh, uh, that, but um, go ahead. Hi, I'm Tim Schroeder from the Philosophy Department, and uh, I wanted to ask about a a certain tension that comes out in... uh, uh, well-functioning and malfunctioning in this account. Uh, so we've got the, the final good characterized in terms of the good, the good characterized in terms of the well-functioning of the thing, and uh, and then well-functioning is not constituted itself by design, um, but uh, in some other way. And so here's the tension that I want to ask about. Do you have a way of, on the one hand, saying that uh, if it turns out that uh, it might be the case, I mean, there are arguments that it's not the case, but if it turns out that uh, a homosexual sexual orientation is uh, in some sense, according to some biologists in the way that they approach these things, a malfunction, that nonetheless having a same-sex sexual partner for a human being might be part of that person's well-functioning and therefore part of that person's final good. Do you have a way of saying that on the one hand without saying, on the other hand, that for, let's say, a psychopath, that for that psychopath, the uh, domination and control of other human beings is part of its functioning and so part of its final good? Right. There's a general set of problems here which goes with the idea that the the good for being is relative to its nature. Um, And the general shape of the problem looks like this. I mean, it's sort of at what what level are we going to identify the nature of the thing? Um, All of us think that there are circumstances under which what it makes sense to say about what be good for you would be something that require that you modify your nature as it stands. So, for instance, you know, if you're a person with very narrow tastes and interests, we might say it would be good for you to develop more interests, you know, to stop watching television, take an interest in the arts, go out in nature, you know, learn to like more things and that will be good for you. So we think it makes sense to say it would be better for you if you changed your nature. On the other hand, it also looks as if there's a limit to how much that makes sense. I mean, on the intrinsic value theory, there's no such limit. You know, it would just be better for you to be whatever kind of being can experience anything that has intrinsic value. But that doesn't seem intuitive, really, that 
you know, it could just be better for you to be an altogether different kind of thing than you are. <laughs> you know, that how are we talking about you anymore? Maybe it's better if there are beings who can experience this, but how is this about you? So there's a question sort of of what kinds of modifications uh, are sort of allowable here and which ones aren't when we talk about what's good for someone. So it's the first level. Um, on the Aristotelian theory, it's natural to think that that barrier is, is coincides with the species barrier. So, um, and you know, that's debatable. Uh, but that is, if you think that's the level at which we identify well-functioning as the level of the species, then that looks like the natural place to draw the boundary. But then there's an additional problem about what we say about the good of someone who maybe is not in the condition to enjoy the best possible goods for a member of his species, but whose condition also can't be remedied. Right? You know, so it's you know, no use to tell somebody who's lost the use of their legs that it would be good for them to run or go hiking. Um, and I don't really have anything terribly useful to say about how those problems are handled. Um, I think on this theory, you would have to say uh, things to the effect that um, activities that bring this entity as close as possible to the well-functioning uh, of their kind are the ones that are good for it. So maybe even in your case, if we, if we do think that there's a defect in certain forms of sexuality, nevertheless, you might think it's good for that person to come as close as possible to having the kind of sexuality that's maximal. So, you know, maybe having a partner is better than having none. Um, I'm not sure I have formulated my question very well. Um, I'm Susan Charles of the philosophy department. Um, so I was trying to understand the, the reflexivity that you were introducing. And the way that you motivated it was by the case of, um, well, say a, a person who uh, is actually functioning well. Okay. Um, having friends and being accomplished, uh, but is deluded as to sort of things that people don't like, and so on, there's some sense that this person isn't doing very well. But, um, but then as you go on, uh, the reflexivity becomes just that you have some sort of welcoming attitude towards your uh, well functioning and it could be something like just uh, I mean when you start to take examples of animals it's just a matter of you know licking your paws or something like that um, it, so now I'm thinking about a, go back to a human being that is well functioning thinks that um you know, she isn't having the relationships that she is actually having. Um, but she has, uh, you know, has some sort of abuse, caught up in some ideology to the fact that this is actually not something that she needs and so on and so forth. So she's not miserable because of this. 
and in some ways she is getting, I mean, this is a radical in person, but she is, um, she is getting, uh, she isn't getting kicks out of the relationship that she is getting, but it's not sort of penetrating her consciousness, and she has this false consciousness, all sort of uh, false beliefs about her life, but you know, in some sense she is like the animal flicking her paws and um, welcoming, engaging in the relationship that on your view makes for a well-functioning life. So, um, can you see what I'm trying to do? It's, it's um, some clarification of what the reflexivity I'm not sure I fully understand the example. This person is involved in a good kind of relationship but sort of values it for wrong ideological reasons. Is that...? So this person is in good relationships. She, or, you know, whatever she's doing is well received. And in, uh, we can tell a psychological story that this kickback is is in some ways helping her to sustain a good mood and uh, uh, continuing her life and, you know, taking care of herself, getting up in the morning and showering and so on and so forth. But she has this radically false story going about um, what sort of relationships she is engaging in. it isn't affecting her badly because, uh, you know, she believes that the best human life is to be, uh, you know, just do what you believe in, no matter how people receive it, um, uh, be on your own, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of false beliefs, but it's not creating the malady spirit. Um, and actually, uh, yeah. Well, you tell some sort of story of the unconscious, you know, what, what is going on unconsciously and what is going on consciously. Yeah, um, I, I certainly, I don't know if I have anything exciting to say about the case except that she's, she's still functioning less well than she might be if she had a proper appreciation of what was good about the way that she's functioning. I mean, there's, there's her, her life does partake of the living in a dream thing. So is it just a matter of your life is going better if you have true beliefs about how it's going? No, it's certainly not just a matter of that. Um. Um. Okay, so what I'm trying to... The initial example, the what, you know... I mean, experiencing something as a good isn't just a matter of having true beliefs that it's good. So the example you used to Because if the goodness of your life were a matter of true beliefs, I mean, then we could say of the virtuous person who sacrifices himself as an early le- at an early age that he has a great life because he presumably knows of himself that he did the right thing. But Yes, no, I wasn't suggesting that that was sufficient or having a good life just to have true beliefs. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is what I'm wondering. The, the original example you used to motivate the look, okay? I think the reason it resonates is not simply because uh, uh, 
you know, it, a person that is in some ways living a, a, a good life, it somehow detracts from the goodness of that life that um, she doesn't appreciate, she doesn't be, know what's going on, okay? Um, but it's not simply that. It's, I at least read into the example that she's probably rather miserable because she doesn't understand what's going on. Right? Um. I think, it, to me, it seems like an additional point that she's rather miserable. Um, I do think there's there's something about experiencing the the actual goodness of your condition. Can I try just one more? One more, <laughs> real quick. Just, yeah. You'll get it a chance later. So here's the question. The reflexive element, is it just a cognitive element or is it emotional? No, it's not just a cognitive element. I mean, because the whole thing is supposed to be predicated on the idea that the reason why animals as such have a final good is because animals sort of feel their condition. Mm -hmm. They feel their life. But uh, I got a little confused at the very end. And what I'm confused about is this, is having a value that um, having a value that stands towards your own function is supposed to be sufficient for consciousness? Because if it's not, I don't know how you can say so certainly that animals have this reflexive element, because they might not be conscious. And if it is, then it's not obvious to me that it follows from sort of the first half of definition of animals, organisms so forms so as to maintain and preserve their forms through action, that that really does require a valuative stances in this sort of strong way, because I can, when they have those little like, robots at MIT that will just move around in monitor locations and try not to get kicked. Um, they happen to be artifacts, but if they just randomly develop by um, particles falling together, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to say they, they would seem to be things, not organisms, but I'm not sure how that would help, that maintain and preserve their form through action. There's a video game where they're called creatures where they go around and kill other creatures, that's all they do. Uh, I'm pretty confident they're not conscious. So it seems like then where you say, well, if that is, how the value of attitude, if that's supposed to entail consciousness, I'm not sure how that follows from the preserving of their own form. Um, I'll say a, a couple of things about this. First of all, as to the question whether animals are or not conscious, obviously that's an empirical question that uh, is not up to me. What I, what I am calling an animal for purposes of this paper, I'm using Aristotle's definition of an animal, not the modern scientific one. It's not talking, I mean, modern scientific animal has to do with what you eat. You know, you, you live on other organisms rather than directly on sunlight or methane. Uh, what Aristotle meant by an animal is something percipient and locomotive, and its perceptions guide its locomotions. Um, and as I said in the paper, I take it that um, these perceptions would have to have at least a minimally evaluative quality in order for this system to work. Now, as far as the robots are concerned, um, this is an, a controversial issue, but 
I think um, in order to count as having perception, um, we have to count the animal as sort of representing its environment to itself. Um, I think it is probable that what makes the difference between representation and mere mechanical responsiveness is a question of detail and nuance, not a question of some wholly different kind of thing. That is, I think if you built the machine so that its responses were sufficiently refined, then it would be perception and you would have built an animal. So the machine doesn't bother me. I'm, nothing, nothing in this theory says it has to be made of carbon, you know. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm Daniel. I'm a first-year uh, PhD in the philosophy department. Um, and uh, my question's pretty straightforward, um, but it sort of comes from a deep confusion, I think, about your talk. Uh, so on the one hand, um, your analysis was, I really enjoyed following the analysis, and um, I thought it was very deep and insightful and led to something true. Um, but I was a little disappointed at the end because it seemed like the conclusion that we were led to was that uh, to live the good life is to value what's good, um, which sort of by the time we got to the end of it struck me as pretty trivially true and leaves open um, the, or leaves unanswered the question which seems much more important, which is well, what should we value? Um, what is good? that we should value. So could you uh, respond to those? Okay, my conclusion is not that to live the good life is to value what's good. Uh, The conclusion is supposed to be that the reason there is such a thing as the good is because there are beings who experience the well-functioning of their own condition in this way. And also, um, as I mentioned briefly earlier on, uh, that it's these evaluative experiences that actually confer value on their objects. So something is good if it constitutes or contributes to the well-functioning of an animal. Uh, And I also mentioned briefly that um, what counts as well-functioning in the life of rational choice is not just health. You would have to tell a long story, of course, which I haven't told here, about why it is that things like knowledge and aesthetic experience and friendship constitute well-functioning in the life of rational choice or in the specifically human life at whatever level uh, in order to make out the case that those things were good. But the point is that their goodness will be conferred upon them. It'll be goodness relative to our nature and it'll be conferred upon them by the fact that we value them rather than the reverse. Yeah, so I have a follow-up to that. So um, uh, I'm not. Uh, so I see how I sort of maybe skewed the conclusion, but I'm not quite sure that my my concern is yet satisfied. Um, so uh, so it may okay. So it 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 may be the case that um, the the notion of the good life is sort of arises from um, beings which are interested in their own. Uh, uh, well-functioning or, or survival or however, um, but so it's it's still it's still the case though that so how how is it though that we go about ensuring our well-functioning? Well, it's by being directed at particular things, particular actions or objects or values or whatever it is. So um, it still seems like 
we you know need to take take a step further and so okay well how is it that we actually enact um, the interest in our own well functioning and it's by valuing things um, and, and sort sort of in the most general and broad sense. Um, now it also strikes me as obvious that uh, um, although we choose um, certain certainly we all make different choices about what it is that we value and what it is that we uh, um, uh, rely on for our well-functioning, um, it also seems obvious that some of those choices are bad choices and some of them are better. Um, so this still leaves open to me the question of um, what is it that makes some choices better than others? And this sort of seems to suggest that maybe we could define uh, what the good choice is, which raises the question, what should we value? Um, which is still still unanswered uh, by the know. Right. Well, as I said, you know, most of us think we have a pretty good idea, actually, what we should value. And, and one would have to, according to this theory, you would have to have a story to tell about why those things constitute human well-functioning. I haven't tried to tell that story here, but I think it would be done. As far as what makes a choice good or bad, um, there again we get back to the problem of, you know, you make bad choices if your nature is defective in some way that makes you unable to see what's best for you. And um, there's a question about the level of at which we can assess your nature. And I'm going at the moment with um, doing it at the level of the species, as Aristotle's theory suggests. So do you, I mean, can you just, you know, recommend a hypothesis for what is the good of the species? Okay, I'll say um, one, there's one thing that I haven't gone into in this lecture at all. It's elsewhere in the story, um, which is that, well, I did mention a little that the capacity for rational choice makes us different from the other animals in the sense that we choose a way of life for ourselves. Uh, it introduces an element of creativity in the human being's choice of what to value and what to live for. Now, I think this fact introduces a particular complex piece of complexity into the story we're going to tell about the human good. There are obviously things that are good for us considered simply as human animals and even as rational animals. But once we've chosen a way of life for ourselves, there are also things that are good for us relative to the way of life that we've chosen. Uh, in terms I use elsewhere, each of us has a practical identity and there's a way in which you flourish in your practical identity as well as flourishing just as a human being. Um, those two things can stand in a rather unsteady relationship to each other. Uh, human beings are capable of valuing lives that are not necessarily the best ones for them as human animals. So, for instance, someone might lead a sort of obsessive life devoted to some scientific pursuit and neglect his emotional needs or something. And it might be good for him in one way, um, good for him as a scientist of a certain kind and not so great for him as a human being. And how to iron out those conflicts, I don't think there's any sort of flat way to do it. I think it's it's part of our plight that our good is divided in this way. Jessica, uh, 
uh, Justin Arms, another philosopher. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, still kind of trying to get my mind around um, uh, the, some of the distinctions you're drawing, the way you're thinking about the final good. And um, I found it helpful when you were comparing other familiar views and, and, uh, and I found it helpful, for instance, when you were uh, imagining that one might take hedonism as an instance of the um, uh, kind of intrinsic value view, uh, or one might take it as a view about what things are good. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a view about value that's pretty familiar to philosophers that you didn't talk about at all, and I wondered if you could help me compare it with the kind of view that you're thinking about and, 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 and put it within the coordinates you're, you're developing. So and that, that's sort of a dispositional theory of value, according to which, as I understand it, um, uh, something being valuable is a matter of its being such as to elicit certain kinds of evaluative attitudes or experiences or produce certain kinds of evaluative responses <coughs> in us under some canonical set of conditions. Um, now, one question about that is, can we do the same thing? Can we say that, well, you could be, you could hold that view as a kind of um, uh, in, uh, objective realist view, or you could hold it as a view about the things that are valuable. But could it be a rival to the Aristotelian course guardian view that you're articulating? Is it, could it, could it be read in a way that's trying to do the same job, but, but doesn't succeed as well? Um, I don't exactly see why you think it would be a rival view, since it actually follows from what I said, that things are valuable if they elicit positive evaluative responses from us when we're in a good condition. So to be valuable just is to elicit positive... Well, there's a complication here, which is basically, yes, to be a valuable kind of thing is to elicit these positive evaluative responses from us um, when we're in a healthy condition, and therefore it's the kind of thing that represents our functioning well. Um, to be valuable in the full sense, and I only gestured at this in the paper, uh, to be valuable in the full sense of having a normative claim on us, I think you have to add in the Kantian story about willing some of these valuable things as the objects of certain laws. Um, the story that I'm telling in this paper is a story of what I think of as the naturally good, uh, but I don't think of the naturally good as being already fully normative. Uh, so there's an additional element that has to come into a, the story for something to be to be good in the full sense. So uh, part of what, what's confusing me maybe about that is, uh, so I... Uh, I would have thought that you might complain that the dispositional theory, um, well, the dispositional theory didn't seem to make any, didn't seem to pass through the notion of well-functioning at all. Yes, um, that's why I keep modifying it and saying it's, on, it's only the responses you have if you're well-functioning. If you're well-functioning, mm -hmm. and moreover, toward your being well-functioning in some way. Isn't that part of I mean, it? <laughs> Um, maybe I can't be well-functioning while, while um, delighting evaluatively in things that have nothing to do with my own well-functioning. Yeah. I would have thought I could. Um, it's it's supposed to follow from the theory that you can't, yeah. I see. 
Jim Rutherford. I'm North Beach surgeon, and I write the medical ethics. Medical ethics understands human nature to be multidimensional, and I think Aristotle did also. He said we're an animal, which gives us basic needs. He also said that we're meant to live in the poorest, which depends on the humanitarian ethic. For example, he said you have to have a threshold of values to live in the community. He said we're also rational animals, and then he said we're animals that are capable of theoretical contemplation, which might be moving in a deontological aspect. And I think that he got to this concept of moderation by a balance of consciousness. And so I think that that concept of human nature as being multidimensional answers a lot of the questions that you've been addressing. And then I'd like to address the concept of moderation as maybe being related to this balance of consciousness. Well, I certainly think that the thing I said before about human beings having what I call different practical identities and choosing different conceptions of the good for themselves covers some of the territory that you're wanting to cover by talking about being multidimensional. There are different ways in which human beings work out a good life for ourselves, although there are also limits on what can be good for us. I'm losing track of the other part of your question. Actually, I don't myself agree with you that the concept of moderation is a big part of Aristotle's philosophy. I think when he talks about the mean, he's not necessarily talking about being moderate in the ordinary way. We use that word that some of the responses that are right, although they're in a mean between good and bad responses, in a mean between different kinds of responses are not the ones we would usually call moderate. And I do think for reasons I mentioned before that it is one of the things that's possible for us is to lead a life that is in certain ways obsessive or concentrated. I'm not sure Aristotle would have been wholly unfriendly to that given his championship of the life of contemplation. Hi, I'm Kevin Nuska from Political Science. I study war and peace, so my apologies if this is kind of a pedestrian question, but I appreciated your discussion of the final good for non-human animals. And I'm sitting here constantly thinking of my dog and my love for my dog. And with the concept of the umbent in mind, that she has her own sensory and cognitive basis for perceiving the world, I kind of have two questions in that regard. One, based on my contradictory umbent, can I know her final good? And more importantly, it would seem that understanding the final good for a non-human animal cognitively would be dependent on two things. One, a rational conception of time, and two, a constant awareness of one's own mortality. And that the final good for me seems contingent on that. But my question is whether basically my dog can know her own final good. I'm certainly not claiming that the other animals know their own final good. I am claiming that they feel it, that they respond to it evaluatively, that when they're in a healthy condition, the things they enjoy are the things that are actually good for them. As far as whether we can know it, that's a complicated question, but we can know a lot about how they function, and therefore can make some pretty good guesses. But things 
you know, the ways in which they see the world can be different from the ways in which we think they see the world in ways that are very surprising to us because of the limits of our own imagination. Uh, yeah, um, so I guess I, I wanted to pursue the idea, uh, again, the idea that um, human beings uh, can sort of have their own good by choosing their ways of life. Uh, and I wanted to pursue, I guess, I guess the question of limits. But the, the way I want to approach that, you mentioned that we couldn't, uh, uh, that we would, that each species, by, by virtue of having its own particular kind of good, that we wouldn't be able to judge whether it's uh, better to be one kind of an animal or another. The same way I would guess that you would want to say we can't judge whether it's better to be one kind of person or to choose one way of life rather than another. Uh, but you did say that there were limits. And I was wondering, it would seem that those limits can't be chosen from any other way other than the idea that uh, something about function, about the Aristotelian concept of function uh, to pursue your own nutrition and, uh, and the sort of reproduction of your form. Are there any other limits that we could choose, or, or is that the only limit that you're sort of allowed to put? Uh, I mentioned briefly in the paper, I didn't exactly give the argument, but I sketched a schema for an argument uh, that Aristotle does make according to which moral virtue is essential to human well-functioning. Aristotle, as I understand him, makes arguments to show that in order to be good at choosing rationally, we need to have the moral virtues. Those are complicated arguments, but I see him making them, and if that's right, that forms a limit. So it's a limit on your power of working out uh, a conception of the good for yourself uh, that it not be that you not be a bad guy. If Aristotle's right about all that, um. I also think there there are psychological limits. I've been saying you can lead an obsessive life and stuff, but obviously, so you know, you could drive yourself that? crazy if you go too far. <laughs> Uh, so how do we get around the fact that uh, uh, I, I had thought that uh, good is only is intrinsically valuable, it's only good because we value it. Uh, I worry that, that these virtues, if we're going to define things in virtue of their being a virtue, that we're sort of bringing a concept of good back into this that uh, it isn't uh, based on uh, or that isn't founded in our, in our valuing it. Well, there is another concept of good putting limits on all of this, which is the idea of well-functioning. I mean, it's, I'm not saying just anything that okay, you so value is... Okay, so the idea of well-functioning, what it is to be well-functioning, is in some other way going to develop these virtues, and these are going to pick those constraints. Okay. about whether your life is a good thing to do that. 
So it's not a matter of time. I mean, if it were a matter of saying to yourself, oh, yes, I'm leading a good life, if that were necessary, the other animals could not have good lives at all because they don't, we presume they don't do that. So it's, it's not that kind of reflexivity. It's just something about your awareness of what's going on with you. Well, it should be it should be positively experienced. It should be welcome. Also, to me, it is a feature of your experience, a positive feature of it. Yeah, I am taking it that experience is positively and negatively balanced, and it is a feature of your experience of the goodness of your life that you experience it in a positively balanced way. Uh, Robbie Newman, I'm grad student at Boston Department. Uh, so I had a couple questions about your reply to uh, the objection that the theory seems to apply that anything can have a final good. Uh, and so actually, I mean, there's something you say in the reply that I think I want to object to if I understand what it means. But I also want to ask, uh, I also think maybe you don't need to say what you say. Okay, so, uh, so here's why I think you, you, you maybe don't need to say what you actually say, but why, don't, why isn't your answer just uh, artifacts don't have a final good because they don't have the value value? Is that, and what we're trying to say is, well, artifacts don't really have a final good of their own because their good is entirely key to ours. And I guess depending on what you mean by Depending on what that means, I'm concerned. Uh, because I, I would think that the well functioning of an artifact might not be good for us. Well, um, the reason I don't go straight to they don't have evaluative attitudes um, is because I don't want to land us in sort of the hedonistic position where everything depends on it's sort of obvious that everything depends on consciousness and I do think the case of plants is importantly intermediate they don't have evaluative attitudes but things are good for plants for plants themselves in a way I think they're not good for cars and vacuum cleaners um, so there's, the plants have something. And part of my objection to the hedonistic theory is if you say, well, no, if you're a conscious being, what's good for you is pleasure, then you've got an account of the final good for a conscious being that makes it completely discontinuous with anything you might say about the good of a plant. And I think it's not completely discontinuous. There is a common element there. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think uh, I was comfortable uh, with the response to the objections of well, plants may have one of the objections is plants may have a final good, but surely not, but surely not the deals have a final good. But isn't that your essentially the reply is that well, conscious beings have a final good in a different sense? Well, I d- yeah, I think it's a slightly different sense, but I want it still to be continuous with the sense in which plants have a final good. Okay, so then you don't have to say, or maybe maybe you do. Yeah. Do you want to say? that the good of any artifact um, is key to our good. Or rather, the, the uh, well-functioning of any artifact, does that have to be key to our good? Um, well, as I said in the talk, there's a way in which I think it doesn't matter what we say about this. Okay. 
You know, I mean, it's just whether we count, I mean, since it's sort of up to us what counts as well-functioning in an artifact, we can count them as well-functioning when they have the properties that we want them to have. I'll give you 30 seconds or less to get that puzzled look into a form of a question. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Bill Smith. I'm from Education. My question may have been touched on by some other people. I'm wondering if you think it would be relevant to your analysis if someone were simply to decree that an animal or some group of animals uh, did not have, could not possibly have, uh, an evaluative attitude towards their own well-being. Um, I don't think it would be a problem for my analysis. Um, I think it would just be a problem. As I say, Aristotle has a particular definition of an animal, and I'm working with that definition, which is not the modern scientific definition. And the modern scientific definition picks out certain things as animals that are not animals from Aristotle's point of view. Say, sponges. You know, filter feeding things that don't yeah. perceive and locomote, you know, but they're animals in the modern sense, but they're not animals in Aristotle's sense. What about cows? 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 <laughs> I think we both, Aristotelians and modern, think that cows are animals. Yes, <laughs> and so do I. <laughs> and if someone were to say um, that these animals did not, could not possibly have an evaluative attitude uh, towards their own well, towards their well-being, would, 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 would that decree uh, have any relevance to your analysis? Evaluative attitudes in the very broad sense I'm using it are just positively and negatively valenced experiences. Somebody could try to claim that cows don't experience pleasure and pain, but there's a matter of fact about that, and I think we need to look at how their brains work and see. Uh, but but I think the fact, person who claimed this would be pretty plainly that wrong. That is not is not addressed by philosophers. That's right. Okay. That's right. Which things are animals in the sense? Okay. I mean, this is a philosophical definition of what an animal is. Which things the definition fits is an, is an empirical question. I'm going to take one more question, and then uh, other questions can be addressed to uh, Chris at the reception. So I'm a little lo- uh, concerned about the loss of... <coughs> Uh, cross-species comparison. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's because I'm infected with belief in intrinsic uh, values, but tell me where I'm going along with this. So um, I'm inclined to think that some species are actually uh, more valuable than others. They're more valuable than others because it's better to be that kind of a thing than it is to be the other kind of a thing. So for instance, if there were set up some weird sci-fi scenario so that Earth is going to be obliterated I only have it within my power to say two, uh, one of two species, and it's the cockroaches and the chimpanzees. Um, it seems like I really ought to save the chimpanzees. Um, and that doesn't seem like it's just because I value the chimpanzees. It seems like there's something deeper there that your picture can't capture. That's so, right. Uh, my picture doesn't want to capture this. Supposed fact. <laughs> I believe that everything that's good is good for some being who's capable of evaluative states. And there is no being for whom it is better in general that chimpanzees survive than that cockroaches do. Things aren't valuable from the point of view of the universe. 
in my view. Um, we might value the chimpanzees more highly for various reasons, so it might be better for us if they survived, but that would be a different kind of point altogether. But yes, I mean, it, it is a cost of my view that you can't sort of talk in, you know, without further ado about what are good and bad states of the universe. You can't do it. So you, you can't actually compare the values of different worlds. Well, for one thing, um, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you could—they have you'd have to compare them relative to the nature of something. Um, I, I also—I I don't understand your inference from how it's from its being better to be a certain kind of thing to that kind of thing being a more valuable thing. That puzzles me. I don't know. I don't think I said this before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll leave it at that. I want to thank you. Thank you very much. And I just want to know that neither did I ask nor was I informed that we'd have so much Aristotle at the time. <laughs> <laughs>